This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Recovery Radio. My name is Steve Martirano. I'm your host and guide as we sit here uh, during these uh, broadcasts and podcasts discussing behavioral health in all of its manifestations, both substance abuse and treatment and mental health disorders and the treatment for them as well. Recovery Radio is sponsored by Retreat Behavioral Health, and we'll have more about them later on in the program. We're uh, concluding now at the end of July, uh, a month designated to minorities and mental health. That's that's a uh, community that I'm guessing uh, is probably underserved by the uh, mental health and uh, substance abuse systems that are in place and probably have a more difficult time getting the kind of help they need. To that end, we have as a guest someone who has for uh, going on two years now worked for an organization that's more or less dedicated to getting everybody, but particularly that group, the kind of uh, help and information they need. Amy Federer is our guest on Recovery Radio. Amy is the Office and Special Projects Coordinator for an organization called NAMI, N-A-M-I. She is the, uh, as I said, Office and Special Projects Coordinator in their Philadelphia office. She's here to tell us about the work that that organization does and her involvement in it. We'll also get uh, uh, Amy's uh, very interesting story of uh, her struggles with substance abuse and and mental health issues uh, that have resulted in uh, her being where she is and now in over seven years of of sobriety. So we welcome Amy Federer to the program. Hi, Amy. Hi, how are you? I'm I'm fine. I already know the answer to this, but I'll ask anyway because I <laughs> recently saw him on television. You're not related to that tennis guy, are you? No, <laughs> no, everybody asks me that, but no, I'm not. They they think they think a uh, a girl working in Philadelphia was raised in the South might be related to a Swedish guy named Roger. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. They're, they're as delusional as I am. Anyway, Amy Federer from NAMI, thank you for joining us. I told you before we went on the air that I recently had been driving down the highway and saw a gigantic one of those electronic uh, billboards that you see on the highway, and there was NAMI. And I got to tell you, except for the research I've been doing for the past couple of weeks on uh, on this issue of uh, mental health and minorities, I hadn't heard of uh, NAMI, and, and there's the... Uh, the billboard in my face. I, I took it as a sign that I should know more about your group. Tell us about uh, NAMI. What's it stand for, first of all? So NAMI stands for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Um, it's the largest grassroots organization in the nation um, for mental health. And I think a lot of people, unfortunately, don't know that we exist, but there's national, state, and local levels I'm from, obviously, the Philadelphia chapter, but there's NAMIs all over the nation. Um, And you can just go directly to NAMI.org, and people can put in their zip code, and they can find their nearest NAMI. So if they know about it, they can look for it, but not many people know that we exist. That's really unfortunate. It is unfortunate because in both the mental health and the substance abuse area, it, the stories we often hear is the size of the problem. There's a mental health crisis in in America. There's obviously a, a substance abuse problem in America, and, and that's great. And, and what is often um, overlooked is that there's a lot of help out there, a lot of help out there. And one of the things we want to do is to highlight those people and organizations that are providing that. So let's let's begin with uh, with with NAMI. You've been over there. You've been there for a, a 
a couple of years now, and uh, there's a whole list of uh, services and information you guys provide. Let's, let's begin with some of the uh, stuff that you sent me to take a look at. I, I know you uh, offer support groups. Is that right? Yeah. So, so we have that. support groups all throughout the city, but then we also have support groups here in our office, and they're consistently every Tuesday and Thursday from 11 to 12. And, and who makes up those uh, groups? Who are they? Wh- which groups are you supporting? So the groups that the people that come to our support groups are, we don't, every, all of our services are free. So anybody who comes to our support group, it doesn't matter what your diagnosis is, what type of insurance you have, what your age is, as long as it's 18 and up, um, they can come to our support group and they come to our office. We have um, all different kinds of levels of wellness, of of different diagnoses and ages, and we're like a huge family here. And it's a peer-to-peer-led support group. So individuals living with mental illness also are the ones who run the group for the individuals living with mental illness. That's called our connections group. Mm-hmm. So, so, so people understand that this is this is not treating whatever the problem may be. This is offering support to people who are either affected uh, directly by uh, problems or their families. Correct. Yeah, so we we do have family support groups as well that are separate from our connection support group, but we are only support. We are not therapists or anything of that sort. We're we're just there to support each other, to talk about our common um, issues and how we can get over them and how we can relate to each other, just so you know that you're not alone. And all of our support groups are very positive and uplifting. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's not a time where, um, you know, we're sitting there and telling people what to do. It's all just a matter of relating to each other. Yeah, it's, it's uh, impossible to underestimate how important just that is, just that support component, because people can feel uh, isolated, and this is, you know, substance abuse and certainly mental illness as well are so stigmatized that people yeah. are embarrassed and ashamed by it. So it's mm-hmm. it's always beneficial to see other people um, with the same kinds of problems. You, I note that uh, you are about to begin or have begun a bilingual support group. Yeah, so that's starting um, in September, and it is going to be at prevention point, and it's going to be Spanish and English. So the woman who's going to be running this support group is speaks Spanish, but she can also just be translating or however it's going to run. It's not started yet, so it's pretty much just going to be however it needs to be run. It's going to be run, but there's a very large need for that. Um, so we decided that it was best to just get that out into the community so that more people have access to the service. Yeah, and uh, in addition to all of that support, you have a uh, a prison program as well, right? Yeah, so um, not necessarily a p- prison program, but we do participate in the crisis intervention training with the Philadelphia police as well as the Philadelphia prisons. And we we help them and educate them and tell our stories with them. And we also um, do some kind of role plays to kind of show them what would be the best way to handle situations and the worst way to handle situations instead of using physical force. And we're also um, hopefully 
in the very near future going to be starting a support group in the prisons as well. Do you are you um, in your experience? Uh, does your organization have the active cooperation of, of official, you know, officials like prisons or police, or are they uh, are they helpful here? Or do you have to go after them? So actually, we have a very close relationship with the prisons. Um, and that just happened organically. One of the members, the prison psychologist, came to the office and just said, hey, we should get together. And it kind of organically happened where we started doing the the crisis intervention training with them. And they are completely supportive. If we ever have issues with somebody calling in to us, um, I can reach out to her. And she's always somebody that's available to help the psychologist that's at the prison. And they're always in um, interested in helping us in any way that they can. And same goes for us. Mm-hmm. The same with the um, Philadelphia police. That kind of organically happened through our relationship with the prison system. Uh, I s- you're you're supported by donations, I guess. Then, if if, if this is yeah, right, yeah, we're supported by donations and memberships. Okay, uh, you know the journey to to a support group or the journey to getting help for any of these problems has to begin someplace. Very often, it's a phone call. You guys also provide a helpline. Yes, so we provide a helpline, and you can just call our office and speak to one of our volunteers or one of um, our actual employees, and you can call about anything. So we offer all kinds of resources available to people. We can tell them about our support groups. Some people call, and they are just completely lost, and they don't know where to turn, and we kind of help them navigate the system. Um, We also... People, some people just call just because they just want to talk to somebody. And we can also be a lending ear and, and listen to them as well. And then sometimes people call because they need a case manager. We can connect them to those resources. We have so many resources at our fingertips that it would be so great that if, if people felt lost and they felt like they didn't know where to turn or what to do, they can just call us and we can help them. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, obviously a, a great idea because unfortunately the person who is in crisis, whatever it might be, is often the one saying, gee, I, A, I don't know who to call and B, I don't know if my problem is applicable or, so mm-hmm. I hear you saying, just call NAMI and we'll, f- we'll figure it out from there. People shouldn't be hesitant to call for help, right? No, and they can call anonymously. They don't have to give us their name, any of their information. They can just call and say, I need help. I don't know what to do. And we will direct them in the right way. And none of us judge. Um, I would say 95% of the people that are here or answer the phones, we all are living with mental illness ourselves. So it, it would it it would be beneficial for them to call because we understand and we're not going to judge you. Uh, so NAMI being a grassroots organization means you guys are close to the ground in the communities you're in. Does that mean you have a, a separate helpline number and other locales do? What's First of all, what's your helpline number? So our helpline number is 267-687-4381. Eight one, and you just dial one when the voicemail comes up. There'll be a prompt. A voicemail will pick up, and you just press one 
right away, and it'll take you right to the help line. You can also reach any of our staff members that way, too. And, of course, wherever you're hearing this uh, in the podcast or the broadcast, you just uh, you Google NAMI, you'll get a number in your location. I, I assume yeah. you guys are in a lot of places. Yeah, so we, are, like I said, we're a national organization, and then there's state and local levels. So there's a NAMI most likely somewhere pretty generally close to your area. And even as far as a helpline, we wouldn't not help somebody because they're not in Philadelphia. If they need resources that are closer to their area, we can certainly connect them to their local NAMI. So if they had questions or something, they could also call us even if they're not specifically from Philadelphia. And we will make sure that they get connected to the right support. Amy Federer is our guest on the telephone. Amy is in the Philadelphia office of NAMI. She is the Office and Special Projects Coordinator. We're talking about the services this uh, national grassroots organization uh, provides for people in crisis, be it substance abuse or mental health issues. More with Amy and NAMI straight ahead. This is Recovery Radio. Don't go away. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. On the phone with us is Amy Federer of NAMI that's the National Alliance on Mental Illness, a national grassroots organization. And uh, she is the office coordinator, special projects, uh, office and uh, special project coordinator in the Philadelphia office of NAMI. Um, all free. It's available. We, we have to make sure people understand that there is a lot of help out there. Um, Amy, let's talk about some of the specific programs that I know y- uh, you guys are involved with. Tell us about Ending the Silence. So Ending the Silence is a program where we go out to schools and we talk to children in middle school through high school, college. We also have a program that is Ending the Silence, but it's geared also towards parents or teachers or staff. And what it is is it's an education piece where we talk about warning signs, symptoms, how you can help a friend if you notice those warning signs and symptoms, suicide prevention, and then after the education piece, there's also a storyteller who comes in and talks about their personal story of recovery and how what, what things were like before and how they got to where they are now. Uh, I'm guessing that in um, uh, certain um, lower economic uh, areas or minority uh, neighborhoods, there's almost a greater um, reluctance to to talk about this. We understand about the stigma attached to this, but there's also the sense that, you know, we have to work this out and I don't want anybody else to know. You're, you're, You're about breaking that down, right? Yeah, and we we have been involved in, a, I mean, all of the inner city schools that we've been to, it's been very well received. I don't think um, it was necessarily thought that we were going to be well received, but we have been well received, and a lot of the kids really enjoy the storytelling and the information, and I understand that sometimes it might not be something that people necessarily want to talk about, but it's definitely something that we need to talk about, especially in those specific communities because of the fact that people feel like they need to keep it in the home, they need to not talk about it, because if they maybe know that 
they're not alone and they're not the only ones and that there's tons of people out there like that, that they can, the point is to kind of maybe start the conversation also at home. Mm. And that's the hope. Yeah. Um, at what level of school do you, when do you go into these schools? At what level? Is it middle school, high school? Is it before middle school? So it's, it's middle school and high school. We've seen grades as young as sixth grade. Um, and then we've gone to colleges. So it's, it starts at very young and we're also working on a specific workshop that is geared towards very young ages. That's before the fifth grade level. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that's in the works that we'll hopefully be able to do just to kind of bring light to the whole conversation. Yeah, a couple of things occur. You'll hear people say, you know, if you start talking about particularly drugs or alcohol with young people, you're going to put the idea in their head and maybe they haven't formed yeah. it yet. Uh, that's that's a mistake, I'm guessing. And secondly, a yeah. lot of these kids already know this stuff is going on, right? It's going on all around them, so they're completely aware of it. And it's the same thing with asking someone if they feel like they want to commit suicide. A lot of people think that that is putting the idea in their head. They're already thinking it. If you bring it up to them, it's not going to put the idea in their head if they're already thinking it. So a lot of people have that misconception that if I say this, then it's just going to you know, put them give them that idea. And that's not true. A lot of the children, especially that we serve, are already dealing with that on a a daily basis. Yeah. And one of the things I guess that the program like yours and the work that NAMI does is to not only destigmatize it, but for those kids, as you've pointed out, who see it and know it's going on, it's in their own homes, Mm -hmm. perhaps. Mm -hmm. Um, This idea that it's not normal, it's not something you just have to endure, but there are people that can help. Do uh, you get responses from kids who are, you know, helped by that idea? Yes. So after we have the presentation, the kids write um, information on on sticky notes about what resonated with the with the program, like what they've learned, what they a hashtag, anything that they want to write, and you would be surprised at the the things that they write on there, how inspiring they felt, how they realized they weren't alone. Um, The response, like I said, it's just been absolutely remarkable. And I really, the kids that come up to you afterwards, it's just, it's overwhelming that the, the response that we've gotten from it is so overwhelmingly positive. Well, we've mentioned uh, very often on this program in the context of mental health and the crisis that's going on, that crisis is no more, uh, no greater uh, in, uh, you know, no, no greater apparent than in the mm-hmm. uh, young community. The suicide rate is alarming. I think it's the second leading cause the of death. The second now. leading cause of death. P- parents need to first know about that and be very aware of how at risk their kids can be, correct? Yes. So it's the second leading cause of death and, um, of teens and adolescents. And the number one is accidental accidents, like a car accident or something like that. But it's the second leading cause of death. And I don't think that people are aware of how high it really is. 
Um, and and the the earlier the better that we get to them the earlier the better. Even it, it's better to you know say something and bring up the conversation even if it's something that you're over exaggerating rather than losing a loved one or scared about. Amy Federer from the National Alliance of Mental Illness is our guest on Recovery Radio. We have more with Amy straight ahead. This is Recovery Radio. Don't go away. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. We'll return to our guest, Amy Federer of NAMI, straight ahead. But I want to remind you about Retreat Behavioral Health and their involvement in the program. We have been partnered up with them for several years now. And from day one, the mandate has always been from uh, Peter Shore, who's the CEO and founder of uh, Retreat Behavioral Health, that this program is dedicated to information and education about both substance abuse and mental health issues. This does not take away from the fact that retreat has helped many, many people. But I again tell you, this is not about selling their services. Uh, This is about informing you of what's available out there. I give you their phone number every week, and I tell you every week that I hope you never have to use it. And I know the people at retreat hope you don't ever have to use it. But in a difficult situation, this could really make a difference. 855-859-8808. That's how you reach retreat behavioral health facilities in the Delaware Valley and in uh, West Palm Beach, Florida. Again, the number 855-859-8808. Amy Federer is our guest. She is the uh, Office and Special Projects Coordinator for NAMI, which is the National Alliance for Mental Health or Mental Illness. It is the nation's largest grassroots organization um, with services free of charge. Um, to uh, people and organizations who are in crisis over substance abuse or or mental health issues. Um, Amy, uh, let's talk about you now because uh, you you come at these issues from a real uh, personal perspective. You are now seven years sober, but not without a lot of struggles to get there, correct? Tell us about your story. Where were you? uh, Where were you born? Where were you raised? All of that. So I was I was born in South Carolina. My dad was in the Navy, so that's why I was born there. But um, when my dad left, me and my mom, when I was around two, we moved to Philadelphia because that's where um, most of my family is from. We we moved to Albany. Mm-hmm. Did you and eventually we moved to Mayfair? Okay. Did you have uh, you have siblings and? Yes, I have two brothers. Um, younger, very much younger than I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, tell us about your uh, your upbringing and um, lead us to your your the, the problems and how they began. We, what was the home life like, and uh, how were you dealing with it? So, um, it was just me and my mom for a good part of my life until I was about twelve, and we struggled a lot. And I always say that I just, I felt like I was walking through almost like a cloud, like I was in this bubble of a world. I didn't feel like I belonged. I felt like, um, I felt uncomfortable to talk to even my own family. I don't necessarily know why that is. I just always felt that way. Mm -hmm. And, um... So we moved around a lot. And when my mom met my stepdad, we ended up moving to Mayfair. And that's when my little brother was born, and I was so excited that I wasn't an only child anymore. I was begging my mom for years to 
have a baby. And, um, and I also, around that same time, though, I also lost my grandfather, which, because I didn't have a dad, he was like a dad. So I, I got really depressed around that time, but it was an excuse for me to be sad and to not want to do anything and to kind of stay to myself. You know, we're, 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 we're now learning and have for some time now that this notion, I know that, that these problems you just described lead to a substance, a serious substance abuse problem. They, they so often, what's so often overlooked is that there are, they're called co-occurring uh, diseases right. that are going on and you've described some of them. You, so you're a dis- depressed, anxious young yeah. young woman and, and you use that uh, and, and you use substances to, to dull that? So when I was when I was seventeen, I graduated high school, and I went to a party down at senior week, and I was drugged and raped there. So when I came back home, um, I went away to Widener, which is only a half an hour away from where I was living. But I um, I never left my room. I, I felt like I was in a completely another world because I had kept myself in this little bubble in Philly. Um, I was just very naive and very innocent, and um, I never left my room. I just became completely depressed, so I dropped out of college, which didn't matter. I didn't have a GPA high enough to go back, and I started hanging out with people who all they did was drink and do drugs, so that's all I did was drink and do drugs. Did any You told no one about the assault, the rape? I told um, the two girls that were with me at the party, and one believed me, one did not. So that's, again, where my whole depression and my I started just not believing in humanity at that point. Right. And I also did tell my cousin who told my mom or her mom, and then she told my mom. And my mom did ask me about it, but I kind of just brushed it off. But no one in your life was encouraging you to go to the authorities or there was, is no. There, no. Well, honestly, I didn't even know who it was because uh, because I was drugged. I couldn't open my eyes. I couldn't respond. Um, so I started questioning myself whether it happened or whether I did something or, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I just all the questions mm-hmm. came. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you found out later that's that's unfortunately an almost common occurrence under circumstances like this so now you're drinking and you're out of college and now how how uh, how swiftly did your substance abuse problems escalate so they escalated to a point i mean i was i was working at verizon i was a manager there and i ended up when i i decided that i was born to be a mother so i got pregnant with my son but while I was pregnant with my son, my son's father started doing heroin, and I told him that he was dirty and a scumbag and he would amount to nothing when um, I had done every drug under the sun, but I always stopped, and I I felt like I was better than because I hadn't done heroin, and then just one day I did. Uh, that also, I've heard, I've heard that before. I want to back up a second because you just, you said something about having the baby. You're not the first person, male and female, that we've mm-hmm. spoken to who's gone through situations like this that didn't at some point think, I know what will solve this. Some little mm-hmm. human being I can create who will unconditionally love me. Yeah. Is that what went on mm-hmm. with you? I think I think it was it was definitely part of that. I, 
I definitely always felt like I was part of, I mean, I just felt like that's part of my reason for existing, having been a mother. I mean, when I was always taking care of my brothers and, you know, I did everything for them and I felt like that was just the reason why I was on this earth. Um, But also because, yes, I would have somebody who would love me unconditionally and always be there. Yeah, this this was something you thought you'd be good at. Yeah. So, um... I thought it would make me happy, honestly. I thought it would make me happy Mm -hmm. because I had the uh, the job, I had the car, I had the house, but yet I still wanted to die, and I didn't understand it. So I figured maybe that would make me happy. Were you getting any treatment for um, psychological or mental health issues during this period? No, during this period, no. I mean, I had seen a psychologist at one point, but... Um, no, I, I, that was only, only lasted so long because I wasn't being honest. I wasn't really talking about what was bothering me. I felt like I couldn't be bothered. So that didn't last very long. And your situation, um, deteriorated to the point where you, you get in trouble with the law. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I was homeless and I, um, I ended up just getting arrested multiple times for doing a lot of things that I wasn't proud of doing. And I ended up getting arrested right in front of my son. And I had no emotion when that happened. I, I wasn't, I wanted to cry about it, but I just couldn't. I was like an empty shell of a human being. And I went to jail and I wasn't getting out of jail anytime soon. So I took a drug court program, which uh, being arrested saved my life. I would never have gotten the help had I not been arrested that day. Uh, t- uh, t- how, how much time did you do in uh, in jail? I was only there for about five months mm-hmm. um, because I took the drug court program. Um, I you plead guilty, and then there are it's basically a way to get out of jail, but you're still watched. Right. You still have to go to court and all that. So. I, I got out because I took the drug court program. Yeah, it's a diversionary program that a lot of people uh, are not even aware exists, I'm sure. So for you, uh, it took a crisis of that size to, to, to get help, correct? Yeah, I, I, I never would have gotten help had I not been forced to. I was multiple times people had... I mean, my mom had caught me in the act of doing drugs, and she told me that I needed to get help, and I refused, and I left her house and went and bought more drugs right then. So, I mean, there was plenty of people who told me I needed to get help. I had gone to a meeting at one point. I just sat in the back of the meeting, and I cried, and then I went in the parking lot and used again. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had opportunities to get help, and a lot of people were trying to tell me I needed to get help, but I felt like I wasn't hurting anybody but myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the substance abuse was, as we said, going on concurrent with, you know, your feelings of depression mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. I guess, suicidal thoughts as well. You, you yeah. were also surrounded by a lot of violence, correct? You lost a brother? Yes, I did lose a brother. This was pretty much after I had gotten out of... Um, the, out of jail and I had went from one treatment center to another and I was doing really well. I was going to group therapy uh, three times a week. I was doing individual therapy. I was going to meetings sometimes twice a day, uh, every day. 
And then, um, you know, I got a one-bedroom apartment with my son. This is years of inpatient and, and recovery houses and outpatient, just trying to get myself together, um, where before that would have made me very overwhelmed, but I was doing the next thing that I needed to do because I didn't want to die at this point, and I was starting to feel like I could live life, and people were telling me they were proud of me. I got this one-bedroom apartment with me and my son, and I ended up um, getting a call from my mom in the middle of the night, and she told me that my brother was murdered. Amy Federer, um, I'm sorry, go ahead, Amy. No, no, go ahead. No, I was going to pause here so we don't get backed up and we'll pick up on uh, Amy's story, her personal story. She obviously has straightened that out now, seven years sober and uh, working for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. She is our guest on Recovery Radio. We have more with Amy. Don't go away. This is Recovery Radio. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Steve Martorano with you. Uh, Recovery Radio sponsored by Retreat Behavioral Health. Our guest has been uh, Amy Federer. Amy is the uh, Office and Special Projects Coordinator for an organization called NAMI. You probably have not heard about them, which is a shame. They are uh, the National Alliance of Mental Illness, and they are the nation's largest grassroots organization. They offer a wide range of support and information and help, frankly, for people in crisis, be it um, from substance abuse or mental illness or or very often both of those situations. Um, Amy has told us her story of struggling with uh, with violence and trauma and, um, and, and mental illness as well as substance abuse, a, a stint in prison as well, and then getting sober now for seven years and working for uh, the Alliance. A- a- Amy, um, during, just before the break, you, you told us about, you know, it was the prison stint that got your attention. But from that from that moment, uh, and and the um, you know the efforts to get sober and getting sober was not you know a straight line. There were there were ups and downs. Were you relapsing during that period as well? No, so I hadn't I hadn't relapsed during that period. I um, I I was on drug court, so pretty much anything that you do that that um, it can send you back to jail. And I was very scared to go back to jail. Mm-hmm. But also, um, I I knew that I had to do it at this point. I had people that were starting to show that they were in my corner, that they were there for me. And I also started learning because when I was in one of the um, – in the impatience, and I, we were all complaining. All of us were complaining about they don't, they're not doing this for us, they're not doing that for us. And my counselor actually sat me down and she said, if you want help, you need to ask for it. We're not mind readers. And something so simple like that really has still to this day stuck with me because I realized I didn't know how to ask for help. I didn't know what I needed. I just knew that I didn't understand life and I was miserable. And so I started asking for little things that I needed um, that would help me like as far as being a better mother and a better person in general. And I started getting those answers. And I really feel like speaking up is what also helped me. I I still, you know, every day, I mean, not every day is, is sunshine and rainbows and perfect. I mean, I really struggle some days as much as I'm blessed in my life. I really do struggle a lot. And so I try to 
talk about it and speak up when something's bothering me because I, I really believe that you're only as sick as your secrets. And so I try not to keep anything a lie or I try not, I try my best not to lie and, and not to hide my feelings. I'm completely open. If I want to say no, I say no for the most part. I'm still, it's still something I'm working on, but, um, you know, speaking up for myself and, and what is going to make me happy is only going to help others around me make them happy, happy as well. Because if I'm no good, they're not going to be any good either. Well, we, we really appreciate when people come on and are so frank and, uh, open about about their story your your uh, case is uh, particularly interesting because of where it led you and how important the work of nami is uh, you as you just described it were confronted with this situation where if you didn't want to go back to jail you did this um right and you were completely unaware that you were even capable of trying to get help nami yeah. nami is the kind of organization that's de- that's set up so that other people don't have to get to the point you got to, correct? Yes, yes. And that's that's the hope I hope for every day when I come to work. I'm really hoping that I'm going to help somebody not get to the point where I am or try to help a family member understand when when their loved one is to a point where I was and try to let them know that there is some sort of hope and that there is help and there's support here because um, I think that the best thing is to be able to talk to somebody who's been through that and who understands and can relate to you and, and help in any way that they can. Thanks so much for sharing your story with us, and obviously thanks for your work with the NAMI. We want to remind people that this is a for-free support organization that's all over the country. So, you know, uh, what's the word? <laughs> Donations are obviously appreciated. If people want to find out more about NAMI or maybe work for NAMI or certainly send money, what do they have to do? So if they want to volunteer for NAMI, they can go to, um, for our office specifically, they can go to namiphilly.org and they can fill out a volunteer form and that would come to me and we would kind of set up a way where we could talk and figure out how they would be able to help at the office. There's also directions on our website in order to show you how to donate because we only are accepting checks at this time, not anything where you can do it electronically. And there is directions on our website that explains how you can donate. And you would just write a check to PMHCC, put our NAMI Philadelphia in the subject line, and send it over to our office. And we're at 520 North Delaware Avenue in Philadelphia. And we're on the seventh floor. And, of course, uh, for people listening not in this area, the same procedures would follow. You just go find the NAMI that's in your neighborhood. Correct. Yeah, so you, if you go to NAMI.org, you can, like I said, you can put in your zip code, and it will it'll tell you your closest NAMI, and you can contact them or go to their website and find out how they do donations. You can also be a member of any NAMI affiliate, including ours, online at NAMI.org or at NAMI Philly. If you wanted to go specifically to us, you can go to NAMIPhilly.org and you can be a member on our website as well. Amy Federer, thanks so much, Amy, for your um, time here today, your work with uh, the organization, 
and congratulations, continued success. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Everybody, look for us wherever finer podcasts can be heard. Recovery Radio. See you later. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.